Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Five. There is not a single river in England that is currently graded as being in good ecological condition. I was going to say that it's a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea, but the problem here, Liam, is that there's no deep blue sea. It's a sort of pale, murky, yellowy, orangey, Lib Demi sea. The possibility now of another Tory leadership change before the next election, that really should be put to bed. Any item of crazy news is always greeted with mad, yes, but not as mad as importing a Turkish cat. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Last Friday, the Indian conglomerate Tata announced it was shutting down the last two operational blast furnaces at Port Talbot, where high-quality steel's been made for a 100 years and more. It's a story close to Alison's heart, of course, given her proud Welsh upbringing. The co-pilot has family in Port Talbot, where Tata's now set to lay off 2,500 of the 4,000 local steelworkers, dealing a body blow to this proud steelmaking town. And I spent Friday reporting live from Port Talbot for GB News, where I talked to countless frightened steelworkers myself, as well as local union bosses. Back in Westminster, talk of Tory regicide is bursting into the open. Former Cabinet Minister Sir Simon Clarke has launched a broadside in the Telegraph, arguing the Tories face electoral massacre unless the party ousts Rishi Sunak sharpish, installing yet another new leader ahead of the next general election. Drastic action, fast becoming a genuine possibility. Keir Starmer, meanwhile, has attacked the Tories' war on woke, ensuring culture war issues related to gender and race will, infuriatingly for many, remain central to British politics. And if there isn't enough to think about, Donald Trump's won primary elections in both Iowa and New Hampshire, making it all but certain he'll be the Republican candidate in November's US presidential election, even if he ends up contesting that election from jail. Yes, co-pilot, just when you think UK politics is crazy, along come the Americans and steal the crown of craziness back from themselves. <laughs> and stop press. We've got an update about that most heavily documented migrant into the UK in years. It's Diddy, <laughs> Alison's Turkish cat. How much? Before all that, though, you've been arguing, Alison, that those complaining about the UK's recent cold weather are actually spouting hot air. So tell us about the winter of 1963, when central heating was the exception and the kids were tough. I should say that at Pearson Towers, any item of crazy news on the TV is always greeted with the uh, mad, yes, but not as mad as importing a Turkish cat. <laughs> so, 
So other people share your mood of derision about the rescue, the moving rescue of this vulnerable small creature. We had some fantastic stories, actually, because listeners may have noticed that our weather forecasters are desperate to compete with their American counterparts. So, you know, there's a sort of a flurry of snow over Lowestoft and they say the beast from the east. Of course, this past week, we've had Storm Isha and Storm Jocelyn and a lot of hysterical warnings. It's going to be very cold. And I thought, it's not cold, is it really? It's not cold. Now, I'm just about old enough co-pilot to recall the winter of 1963, which was the coldest winter for 200 years. Amazingly, Liam, it started on Boxing Day. And some people say that snowmen they built were still standing in Easter 64. So it was bloody cold. And I thought, I'm not sure. Of course, I was tiny. I was I was a toddler. I think I can remember the path outside our back door. And it was, it, in my memory, it was like a trench of ice. I mean, compacted snow towering up on each side of me. Basically, South Wales's answer to the north face of the <laughs> Iger. And we didn't have central heating. I think there was one fire downstairs and certainly through my childhood going upstairs to bed in the winter and and the cold would basically smack you in the face and the other thing I thought about was that today's puffer jacketed masses don't realize that most of us were wearing woolen clothing knitted by your gran knitted by your gran so you'd have a cardi and you'd have a gabardine mac which once wet would never be dry again I mean basically that was it and it wasn't optional wearing a hat to go outside now is you know you might put a hat on to go outside but your ears would burn with cold back then so I asked readers I asked telegraph readers to share memories of their coldest winter. This is what one of the things I love about being a journalist and Planet Normal is you just ask people for, for stories and they come flooding in. And just to give you a couple of examples, Liz Pilkington said she was eight years old in 1963 and they were snowed in for two months on her farm. <laughs> two, two months? Two months. Eating nothing but Bam. Me dad dug us out through six foot snowdrifts with a shovel until he reached the next farm. We walked, we walked a mile to school every day. No shutting the schools, Halligan. No, you, know, you didn't get a day off school. There were some days when school was hardly possible because the school dinner bus couldn't get through. Anyone who did make it to school was given tinned sardines and bread for lunch. And stewed prunes. I also remember my dad digging 20 sheep out of a snowdrift. They had been there so long that they they were eating each other's wool. <laughs> and then you'll love this from Joseph because this is sort of slightly more your part of the world. So Joseph says he not only remembers the winter of 63, the great thaw and flooding that followed. I was 10 years old, said Joseph. We just moved to the leafy suburb of Hendon on the outskirts of London. My dad, much against the protests of mum, took me and my younger brother swimming along the Watford Way swimming over half-submerged cars in the cold and filthy waters. My mother was furious as she hosed us down after, but my dear father said that when they are long gone, as when my parents are long gone, no matter what else my dad could give us, we will always remember the day that we swam through the streets of London. He was not wrong, and 60 years later I recall it as one of the happiest 
days and fondest memories of my life. And you know what comes through, Liam, because whenever you talk about things like this, people always say, oh, it's the sort of Monty Python, e, we had it rough. The four Yorkshiremen. We used to dream of living in a corridor. <laughs> we used to dream of swimming through the streets of London. But what shines through is that even though it was bloody cold and arduous and people had a hard time, people's memories of it are just so fond. Yeah. And it does make you wonder whether a more comfortable, centrally heated life is actually all it's cracked up to be. But you, talking about cracking up, you really made me laugh because your dad was a plumber. And what was it like in your house? Tell me. Yeah, my dad was a plumber. And just as the cobbler's sun is worse shot we didn't have central heating <laughs> the first time i saw central heating my, in my house was when i came back from university in my <laughs> mid-20s it, it was like we were living in the sort of 1940s in 1970s and 1980s london just up the road from hendon no no central heating but we just it's just all that we knew it sounds ridiculous but it it literally is all we knew a lot of my friends didn't have central heating and those who lived in houses that did always seemed to have the sniffles. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it was it was a wonderful piece, and we'll put the link to it in the show notes of this episode, and it's one of those pieces that really did spark some wonderful recollections from Telegraph readers, and that's very much what we like, isn't it? Yeah. But let's move on, because there's a lot to talk about, to Tory regicide. You and I have been discussing this for a long time, Alison, whether or not the Tories should change leader before the next election. It's been seen as a crazy idea for months, but in recent days, it really has come to the fore. And I would say it is now at the heart of British politics. Are the Tories going to conduct regicide? Are they going to remove Rishi Sunak? Having yet another unelected prime minister, what would the public think of that? Would there be an electoral advantage. And I don't think there would be on balance. I understand the arguments for why you'd want to get rid of Rishi Sunak. But I personally think, and you may have a different point of view, Mm. the general public would think the Tories have gone completely nuts, full tonto, as I said last week, because it would be seen as massive internal fighting at a time when the country badly needs some leadership, badly needs some grip. And I do see opinion polls where Kemi Badnock might challenge Keir Starmer and give him a run for his money, where other top Tories, apart from Sunak, may fare better than the current Prime Minister. But what those opinion polls don't take into account is the pain of changing the leader. The fact that, you know, so much of the media class and indeed the world would say, Have the Brits, have the Tories gone completely and utterly mad? I was going to say that it's a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. But the problem here, Liam, is that there's no deep blue sea. There's no blue at all, is there? (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Yeah, I see what you did there. It's a sort of pale, murky, yellowy, orangey, Lib Demi sea, isn't it? I thought you were going to say something else, pale, yellowy and murky. (laughs) (laughs) But I absolutely hear what you say and that... They would be accused of mad as someone importing a Turkish cat. That oh, level. Not, not, not that mad. Don't be silly. <laughs> not that mad. But we have seen this week Sir Simon Clark, former cabinet minister, breaking ranks in the Telegraph and really laying out the scale of the oncoming calamity. And Simon Clark is basically saying that the opinion poll, the YouGov poll we saw last week, is actually saying that the Conservatives would fall from 
350 MPs to 169. I've told you I think that's probably optimistic. Yeah, you, you reckon 100 to 120. Well, I you? reckon to 100 to 130 probably. And that's more Tory seats being lost than in 1997. It's all of the red wall seats won, won by Boris in 2019. And it does shockingly mean defeats in absolutely rock-solid historic Tory constituencies like Chichester, Horsham, many, many senior figures from the party being deprived of their seats. And I think what where I agree with Simon Clark really is he says the unvarnished truth is that Rishi Sunak is leading the Conservatives into an election where we will be massacred. It is time to strip away illusion and stop tolerating any indulgent of it. So he's basically saying we're going to have this Starmer government and it won't just be a Starmer government, Liam, because if they drop to below 150 seats, it will be a Starmer, it will be a Labour government for a decade or more because it will be such an electoral mountain to climb. And what the figures show and what Simon Clark is quoting is that these opinion polls show not only does Sunak lag the totally uninspiring Keir Starmer by double digits on the best prime minister metric. He leads Starmer in just 139 seats across the country and is behind in 493. Now, Rishi's personal ratings have collapsed and are now lower even than Jeremy Corbyn's. So what this poll quoted by Simon Clark is basically saying is that if the Conservatives were to change, if they were to take the pain and the mockery and the derision of changing to a tax-cutting Tory leader with a tougher approach to immigration. The poll suggests that in 322 constituencies in England and Wales, those constituencies would prefer that Tory leader to Keir Starmer, who on that measure only comes top in 164 constituencies. Before we bounce back to you, I still don't agree with Simon Clark that the Tories would win with that stronger new leader. But a new leader, say like Kemi, Suella, Pretty, one of the tough women, would, to my mind, undoubtedly reduce the scale of the defeat. So it's a question really, isn't it, of whether they think that's worth it. And it's a very fine calculation, to my mind, because we know MPs, Tories, such as the Tories that are remaining in the country, are afraid that another change of leader would, of course, look absolutely ridiculous. But as Simon Clark concludes, what could be more ridiculous than meekly sleepwalking towards an avoidable annihilation because we were not prepared to listen to what the public are telling us so clearly? I think the first thing we should do, Alison, is just pat ourselves on the back because we have been talking about this possibility for a long time and now it is really the central question in British politics. It is finally balanced, but I do think that the British public would just not forgive the Tories for installing a third unelected prime minister. I just think the exasperation would be off the scale, whatever the merits of that newly installed leader compared to the current leader. Look, I get the scenario. Let's say suddenly Sunak's out and somebody like, say, Kemi Badenoch comes in. Bright, fresh, very punchy, very determined. And let's say that Kemi Badenoch or someone like her 
goes for huge policy changes, you know, very, very bold policy changes. You know, the personal tax allowance raised to £20,000. The threshold for the higher rate of tax raised from 50-odd grand to 100 grand. Really big, bold moves. Leave the ECHR. Properly get a grip on small boats. Labour's going to find it really difficult not to look very flat-footed in the wake of big Tory tax cuts. If the markets can be kept on side, if the markets believed in a new dynamic British economy under firm leadership, then it might just come off. But I think it's an extremely risky strategy. The whole of the Conservative Party could get tarred with the same brush that Liz Truss, fairly or unfairly, has got tarred with if financial markets took umbrage. And you can be sure that if the Tories did something like this, they're not going to get any help from the Bank of England or the Office of Budget Responsibility and the civil service, are they? On the contrary, the so-called deep state could make it its business, sotto voce, to sabotage what the Tories are trying to do. It's a hugely risky gambit. And if it came off, it would be the political masterstroke of the century. It it would literally be a a movie. But I think the chances of it coming off are very, very low. And I think the most likely outcome is that we just end up in a mess. Is it going to happen? I think so much now depends on the results of the Wellingborough and Kingswood by-elections on the Thursday, the 15th of February. Mm. If the likes of reform get into double digits in those elections. If Labour takes them both and the Tories get absolutely walloped being pushed into third place or even worse in both those constituencies, constituencies, of course, which they currently hold, then you could have panic. And it strikes me that the likes of Kemi Badenoch, the likes of Priti Patel, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, the likes of Swella Braverman, standard bearers of the Tory sort of centre-right that are being talked about as an installed prime minister to contest the next general election. They don't want that. They don't want that to happen. They want Sunak to take the blow of a big election Mm. loss. Then they can come in as a clean skin, if you like, after an election and start to rebuild. But it may be, it may be that the ferment on the parliamentary backbenches of the Conservative Party becomes so, so huge that 53 letters are given to Sir Graham Brady Letters saying that confidence has been lost in Sunak's leadership and a change of leadership may be sparked. Whatever the main contenders in that leadership election want to happen. And that would be an incredible situation. They'd literally be dragged towards the throne. And that is the big danger. And I think on balance, if you want the Conservative Party to do well, if you want British democracy to function in a way that isn't completely debilitating for the country's sort of central nervous system, if you like, if we're all going to stay sane, then I do think the possibility now of another Tory leadership change before the next election, that really should be put to bed. I don't agree. We rarely disagree, do we, on our charming little rocket? But when we disagree, we disagree agreeably. We do disagree agreeably. I want conservatism to do well. That doesn't mean I want this government to do well because they're not conservative in my in my book and in the book of many of our listeners and, and readers. But we saw this weekly in just a little snapshot. So Keir Starmer is able to take advantage of Sunak now. So he gave this absolutely monumentally disingenuous, cheeky speech at the Civil Society Summit where he was 
accusing the Tories of sabotaging civil society, attacking the National Trust and the RNLI. They got themselves so tangled up in culture wars of their own making, undertaking a weird kind of McCarthyism, trying to find woke agendas in the very civic institutions they once regarded with respect. I mean, this is absolutely jaw-dropping stuff from the leader of a party and a movement which has made its business to infiltrate every institution, every civil service department with maximum wokeness, stirring up divisive racial and gender identity politics wherever they can and constantly putting ideology before the public good, never mind public functioning. The woke washing of our institutions is hardly the figment of imagination of some right-wing think tank. Every single week now, we see some poor teacher, university lecturer who's been sacked for their so-called gender-critical views. You know, Liam, I hate that term, gender-critical views. How dare they? They are changing our vocabulary to their vocabulary to then find us guilty. I'm not gender-critical. I'm a woman. I'm a woman. You're a man. That's it. Did you see what happened in Canada recently? A 50-year-old bloke changing alongside female 13-year-old swimmers and then competing with them in a pool and winning and all the parents of the 13-year-old girls who have been walloped by this 50-year-old bloke are expected to congratulate him. The world's gone completely mad. Just to carry on that thought, so... Sunak and the Tories, far from living up to Starmer's picture of them as this waging a McCarthyite war on woke, if only they bloody well would wage a war on war on woke, they've been absolutely weak. And for my money, the people like Kemi and Suella, who have absolutely been the bravest of the brave yeah. in sticking up for kids in schools, you know, demanding that children don't just get to sort of transition without their parents' knowledge and so on. I think that that someone like that, a real firebrand who could come in and people would wake up. But what I'm seeing is across the board, really, but ordinary working people, their views not represented. They don't go along with any of this Labour stuff at all. In fact, it's quite interesting that some readers will and listeners will have noticed that I had the Telegraph reprint that uh, notorious photograph of Starmer and Angela Rayner taking the knee on the day of George Floyd's funeral. Now, it looks shocking then and it looks even more shocking now. But someone who could be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, basically paying obeisance to a foreign movement, a fully paid up member of this really discredited cult. But moving on, slight change of pace, but in a way it still matters a lot, I think, is this disregarding of ordinary people's views and values is this sacking of two and a half thousand people at the steelworks in Port Talbot. And I describe them in my column, make no mistake, over 140,000 lives. That's the population of Greater Neath, Port Talbot, have been sacrificed on the altar of net zero. British workers losing their jobs, which will remove 1.5% of UK carbon emissions, while that CO2 will now be emitted in India and China. And they call this progress, Halligan. What did you make of it? I do think the closure of the two blast furnaces in Port Talbot by Tata, two of only four remaining working blast furnaces in the UK, the other two are in Scunthorpe, 
the steelworks there, owned by a Chinese conglomerate, also earmarked for closure. It is a story that is about a clash of cultures, a kind of metropolitan, net zero, at all costs, environmentalism above everything. On the one hand, and on the other hand, you have ordinary men and women from so-called blue-collar families in less fashionable parts of the UK from much, much lower-income backgrounds for whom the closure of steelworks and other forms of manufacturing due to a net-zero imperative is nothing short of financially and culturally, actually, disastrous. I talked to lots of local steelworkers on Friday. I talked to lots of local trade union leaders And they feel this is being done to them. They feel that the political and media class doesn't understand the importance of steelmaking, the strategic importance of steelmaking. It's worth just explaining briefly that when you have blast furnaces, they do use coking coal, but that means you can make steel from first principles, from iron ore. You can make virgin steel, which you need in a lot of tall buildings. You need for railways, you need for arms. It's the highest quality steel. Tata say, they say they're going to replace the blast furnaces with so-called EAFs, electric arc furnaces, and those EAFs, they can't use iron ore, they only use scrapped and recycled steel, and the steel is of much lower quality. So the UK will be, you know, the the country that pioneered modern steelmaking techniques Mm. in the 19th century, the UK will be the only country in the G20 group of advanced industrialised countries that can't make its own steel from scratch. We'll have to rely more and more on imported steel from China, from India, at a time when, of course, the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, the root of those imports is very much contested. So it does seem strategically a bit inept, to say the least. And it strikes me that it's difficult for Labour. What do they do? On the one hand, you've got Stephen Kinnock from Wales himself, of course, a Welsh MP saying this is terrible, we're closing down the blast furnaces. And on the other hand, you've got the likes of Keir Starmer, Metropolitan London to his fingertips, you know, congratulating himself that Labour would actually go faster and faster when it comes to net zero. So this is about a clash of cultures. And what we're seeing here now is the beginnings of a genuine debate, Alison, and it's so long overdue. Whatever you think about getting rid of fossil fuels. I personally want to see us use far fewer fossil fuels. But whatever you think about it, there are costs. And those costs are falling disproportionately on ordinary men and women, ordinary working families. And those costs are seemingly non-existent to, you know, posh hipsters who live in the big cities who can just splash out, you know, tens of thousands of pounds on a heat pump and on a brand new Tesla. So I do think politicians have to listen. I do think we need to go a little bit more slowly here. I do think we can't just dismiss these concerns about the rush to net zero as the incoherent bleatings of people who are climate change deniers. Just the use of that word by so many people is disgusting because the word deniers, of course, is linked to really heretical disgraced historians who deny the Holocaust happened. I mean, complete loony tunes. To use the phrase deniers about people who are genuinely concerned about the lives and livelihoods of themselves and their family because of this rush to net zero 
is a rhetorical outrage. And yet it's one that we hear more and more from many of our media. But it's not open to challenge, Liam, is it? It's absolutely obscene, the lack of foresight amongst our ruling class. We've seen it in almost every area. We need energy security. We need food security. We need this high quality steel. In the week that NATO said that we may be at war with Russia within 20 years, we literally decommission the blast furnaces, not only which support this community. I mean, I could talk to you about the poverty that's there already, but the weapons grade steel we would need if China invaded Taiwan. And where are we getting our steel from? From China. It's absolute madness. And I just think we cannot rely on these people supposedly in charge of our country. It's absolute, the calibre of them, Liam. I wrote in my Port Talbot piece, you might almost get the impression the nation was run by a fifth column plotting its downfall. That's how excruciating it is. And they will pocket this tiny, tiny reduction in the UK's CO2 emissions, which are meaningless. They're so tiny in the greater order of things anyway. And they'll be able to swan off to the next COP summit, won't they? Boasting about the fact that they've made this moving along the road to their ridiculous, punishing net zero target. And who's getting punished? <laughs> thousands and thousands of ordinary people in Port Talbot, the, the, the hair salon owners, the corner shop, you know, the taxi drivers. There's not going to be any bloody money, Liam. It's tens of thousands of people who are already poor and they are going to be destitute and they will. the government will say, oh, we'll put in money to create new jobs. It never happens. Look at Consett. Look at the Welsh Valleys near where I grew up. Once the coal mine shut, what did we see? We saw depression. We saw drug taking. We saw criminality because they want to, they steal a lot. They burgle a lot to pay for their drugs. You saw teenagers, heroin addicts, which had never, ever happened in, in that part of the world. And they're good people, Liam. They're, they're, they're chipper. They're on for life. You know, they've got a robust sense of humor born from years of really hard manual work. And they are great people. And they're, and they're my people. My Welsh professor friend called what they've done to Port Talbot democide. Democide, right? I've absolutely no confidence in this government or in the opposition. I just want to pose the question, how many livelihoods will have to be lost to achieve that crazy 2050 net zero goal? Hi, I'm Katie Morley. I'm the Telegraph's consumer champion, and I'm here with a new way to help you be better off. It's called Telegraph Money, and from pensions to property, tax and investing, it puts all of our expert opinion right where it belongs, at your fingertips. You'll also find a range of useful tools and calculators to help you understand what today's news means for you and plan for tomorrow with confidence. Search Telegraph Money today. Here's a Planet Normal guest from the world of music and culture. Fergal Sharkey is one of the best-known pop stars of the 70s and 80s. The pop-punk band he fronted, The Undertones, were quite simply iconic. 
Hits like My Perfect Cousin, Jimmy Jimmy, and above all, Teenage Kicks were of massive importance, not just in the UK, but across the world, and are widely celebrated to this day, having been discovered by successive generations. The undertones were made up of five Catholic boys from Northern Ireland, specifically from Derry, Londonderry, to the west of the province close to Donegal in the Irish Republic, a city at the centre of the Troubles, the scene of Bloody Sunday, its very name contested by communities on both sides of the sectarian divide. UK-Irish relations are now much improved, of course, not least since the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, and Sharkey, who by the mid-80s had softened his musical image, himself has mellowed too. A lifelong fly fisherman, he's emerged in recent years as an extremely knowledgeable and highly effective campaigner against the pollution of British rivers, particularly chalk streams. While Sharky and I talked about the undertones, how could we not? The first part of our conversation covered his determination to prevent water companies dumping sewage into UK waterways and coasts. I've spent uh, 50 years now, more than that actually, standing about in the middle of rivers, waving bits of cane, carbon fibre, fibreglass around my head in a futile attempt to persuade trout and salmon to be obliging enough to hold on to the end of my fly line. A lot of people don't get fishing. It is, though, the biggest single (laughs) participation sport in Britain. What is it about testing your wits against these incredibly clever fish, catching them, and then, for the most part, throwing them back? Ironically enough, you go back to a, a man called Isaac Walton, who back in 1653... Uh, wrote a little book called The Complete Angler, who I think described it best when he said, is it not an art to deceive a trout with an artificial fly? A trout. And for me, I've always had one of those brains that there's always 50,000 things buzzing around inside my head and there's this constant noise. And fly fishing, uh, which doesn't actually involve sitting around, for me, it is one of the few things I can find in life where I want to focus on it so utterly intently to deceive that wild animal, that wild fish, that this thing that I've tied using old bits of silk and feather and thread is actually a living, breathing of insect that it wants to consume and wants to eat. And such is my focus to achieve that. It allows me to push all of the other noise and static into the back of my mind. And that in itself becomes this weird, strange form of relaxation. So tell us about the threat to our river courses, Fergal. You've talked about concerns you have about the water industry. You've talked about concerns you have about agriculture. Well, in reality, what we're looking at is a situation where in the modern world, There is not a single river in England that is currently graded as being in good ecological condition. Not one. Every single river in the country is polluted. And yes, as you've touched upon, two of the biggest forms of that pollution and directly responsible for it is agriculture and the water industry. And for me, what that translates into is simply a physical manifestation of the failure of political oversight and the failure of regulation and the failure of those that we have appointed and anointed to secure our environment, to look after it, to protect it, have colossally failed 
at the job that we've given them. And in reality, that's what's been motivating me and driving me over the last three or four years now, is simply to highlight that utter failure of regulation, that failure of political oversight, that created a vacuum. The water industry particularly has decided to fill that vacuum to the extent that they have paid themselves about £72 billion in dividends. That's bill payers' money. And in exchange, we've been given rivers and beaches full of sewage, or to compress it into a single sentence, we've been cheated. You've written, Fergal, that the government's terrified of making the private water companies liable for the damage that they've done for pumping sewage into rivers, because if they do, then those companies would have to declare themselves bankrupt and the government would have an even bigger problem. What changes do you want to see in the structure of the water industry? Maybe changes of ownership? Well, in terms of the ownership itself, I don't think that's specifically right now the issue. Have those water companies utilised that failure of regulation and the failure of the politics to their own benefit? Yes, they've over-abstracted and I would say profiteered off the back of that failure. There's been enormous amounts of financial engineering going on to the extent that I think collectively now the industry is looking at about £64 billion worth of debt that those companies are carrying. It's got to such an extent that last summer, Thames Water, in fact, came teeteringly close to bankruptcy simply because they can't afford to pay the levels of debt and the interest payments. And in fact, there's a another interest payment coming up in April of this year. And it's looking likely at the minute that Thames Water simply do not have the cash available to pay that interest payment. And are now asking the regulator for a 28% increase in bills simply to compensate for their mismanagement and their corporate greed over the last 30 years. So for me, it's not about the ownership of the companies. It's actually about the regulation of those companies. I personally feel all of the power is there, all of the legislation there. It's an off-quoted phrase, the regulators don't have the teeth. In this case, it isn't true. There's enormous amounts of power available to the regulator. They've simply never had the ambition or the desire or drive to utilise it and do their job properly. Let's enforce the law for a while and then we'll see how far we get. Tell us about the extent of the sewage in Britain's rivers, how it compares to previous periods in our history, how it compares to other countries. Well, the simple truth is the law that applies to all of this is actually European and comes from a European directive, and specifically enough, uh, particularly the Water Framework Directive, which ironically enough at the time was acknowledged as in Brussels and indeed was referred to as the British Directive. And the original ambition of that was by 2015, every single water body in Britain, and that's every river, every lake, every stream, every pond, every single water body would be and attain good ecological status. Now, there were a number of caveats that you could push that deadline back. The current deadline, and it's the backstop, is 2027. I think by 2009, about 24% of rivers in England were attaining good ecological status. 
By 2015, that had slipped to about 16%. By 2019, it was down to 14%. And by 2027, the current objective is and forecast is unless something truly drastic happens by 2027, the final deadline, just 6% of England's rivers will be and attain good ecological status. So as you can see, instead of getting better, things have actually been getting progressively and demonstrably worse. Well, I must say you have used your profile, your name recognition to really put this issue on the map. But let's just talk a bit. I can't resist Fergal Sharkey, the man, the music, the band. What was it like growing up in Derry in the mid 70s, Fergal? What motivated you and your friends to go along to the local scout hut and make music? The simple truth is what motivates any teenager to get involved in making music, or indeed anybody, but particularly teenagers. It's two essential ingredients. One, being a huge, passionate and massively interested and engaged and absorbed about music. And secondly, being completely and utterly bored as a teenager. So invariably, four other equally bored, disinterested, hormone-ridden, sexually frustrated teenage boys, five of us drifted together and completely randomly decided we were going to form a band. Nobody could play anything. Nobody had actually ever been behind the drum kit or even held a bass guitar. And in fact, we didn't have any equipment. It was simply five bored teenagers going, I know, let's form a band. And it became the Undertones. So you were 17, 18 years old in the mid-70s when the band was formed. What was the 17 or 18-year-old Fergal Sharkey like? Were you the natural front man? All of my friends at this point will be rolling their eyes going, <laughs> he's going to deny it, but it's completely true. Shall we, shall we just say I still, and maybe that goes back to the environmental thing, where I suspect I've always had a lot to say and any opportunity to stand in front of a microphone, or indeed at this specific moment, particularly when I felt I had something to say, I think we may have naturally drifted into that idea. Well, he's kind of the gobby one, so we'll put him at the front. Uh, and he's the one that likes to show off. And my close friends would probably argue that I've not changed in the least. <laughs> so you famously sent a tape to John Peel, the iconic radio DJ who specialised really in giving a leg up to unknown bands. Like so many young bands at the time, you saw John Peel as a potential way into the music industry. How did it feel to hear John Peel play Teenage Kicks? Not once, but twice in a row. That was a pretty extraordinary thing. We were all sitting in those days in Ireland, and no doubt the same thing applied in England. There was the front room, and that was the kind of <laughs> sitting room that was normally out of bounds. I think we, were, the whole band were there waiting for it to happen. We knew in advance that John was likely to play it, as he basically had told us. And at that point, the good Lord could have claimed came down on earth and claimed all of us. We could have killed our careers off right, right there and then, and we would have seen it as a massive success. You produced as if anybody doesn't know, according to John Peel, according to many, many music aficionados, the perfect sort of pop punk song. It's two and a half minutes long. It's got an intro that's totally iconic. Did you know when you first heard that song, when you first performed that song, 
how special it was. Oh, wait, listen, we had no idea. <laughs> Teenage Kicks was originally released on an EP with three other songs on it. And uh, I think collectively, we didn't think Teenage Kicks was the best song on that EP. We all had much better other favourites. So it came as news to us. I think the biggest accolade of all, and I remember John telling me this, occasionally we would go meet up with John and uh, go for a curry somewhere in the West End. And I remember on one occasion, John telling me that he was going to have it as his epitaph. I remember sitting there thinking, no, no, you're on your second pint of Cobra. It's <laughs> late in the Friday night. But if you go to uh, John's grave, yeah, you will see on his tombstone are carved the words, a teenage dream so hard to beat. I'm 10 years younger than you. I grew up following the music industry very, very closely. There's a lot of yeah. music in my family too. And as somebody of Irish origin in the UK, back during those really difficult years, yeah, I was always astonished at the massive influence of Irish bands on the British music scene, despite the kind of political rancour between the two countries. It was absolutely huge, wasn't it? Why is it that Ireland, the island of Ireland, has had such a massive impact on the British music industry and Irish-influenced pop music has been so hugely welcomed. British fans have roared their approval over many years, despite political difficulties. Yeah, in fact, the first one goes back to early interviews that I would do overseas and outside the UK, and gently just steering people along this idea that we share a common language, but the Irish are a very different race and a very different culture of people to the English and the rest of the United Kingdom. And that's not a derogatory comment. We just are. Particularly in Ireland, there was that very, very deeply rooted lyrical music storytelling tradition. And in fact, that went on because of migration and immigration, particularly during the mid-1800s. And that had a massive impact in places like Liverpool and Manchester. And in fact, my wife, Mrs. Sharkey, has recently written a book on that very topic. And it was that Celtic culture impacting on places like Liverpool, like Manchester, that helped give birth to rock and roll and the Beatles. And indeed, in many ways, we weren't discovering the blues. We were simply re-importing Celtic culture, particularly from the west of Scotland and Ireland, that had been exported during the 17th century out into the colonies in North America. So there's a whole big tale out there. Go and look it up. But the truth is, in Ireland, I was always brought up, taught to read, encouraged to read, taught to discover culture, to have an opinion. I was allowed, in fact, it was almost demanded at home that I had an opinion. And in fact, the real failure that would be unforgivable was having an opinion, but not being able to intellectually justify it. So in Ireland, as you know, Liam, particularly 100 years ago, there was a system developed around education, and it did become that mantra of education, 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 and Ireland these days, and I'm not looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, but it is now a modern, contemporary, successful, outward-looking, globally-recognised country on the verge of declaring a budget surplus. And I guess the best indication I can give you of any of this is the, the way that Ireland society has changed over the last 30 years, 40 years. is just unrecognisable. And I guess best summed up, I occasionally see it 
in some places where men, particularly about to challenge young Irish women or young modern contemporary Irish women, and I normally nudge them very gently and very quietly go, I think you're about to make a very big mistake, but if you're going to insist on this, give me a few minutes while I pull up a chair because I'm about to watch you get your rear end handed to you on a plate because young Irish women in particular these days are confident, outward-looking, successful. They know the universe is theirs for their taking, and they're quite keen and hungry to take it. Final question. You're ethnically Irish. You grew up in the UK. You live in England. You clearly have a deep respect and, may I say, love for England. What's the state at the moment of relations between the UK and the Republic of Ireland? Well, I think overall they're reasonably okay. There is clearly a political issue right now over the fact that there isn't a government in Northern Ireland, and that clearly needs to be resolved sooner rather than later. I was back in Derry a matter of months ago, and the local MP, Colm Eastwood, was telling me that there's currently 20% of the population of Derry on a waiting list simply to see a consultant. And indeed, I guess the biggest manifestation on that, to bring it back to the environment, is the now absolutely unbelievably diabolical pollution and failing of the state of Loch Ney and the blue-green algae and the fact that that massive water body, the largest lake, and I think in the whole of Western Europe, is now massively polluted and environmentally failing. And it has, in many ways, simply become the physical manifestation of politics in Northern Ireland, poisoned. So in many ways, it's incredibly good. But by the way, I think it's now time for the grown-ups to get into the room and start putting in a parliament back together for the people of Northern Ireland. That's what they voted for. Now deliver it. Virgil Sharkey, a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for your time, Liam. So there you have it, Alison. Virgil Sharkey, one of my heroes, I must say. I can't tell you how important the undertones were to me as a kid. What a voice, what a face, what a guy. You know, it was such a lovely change of pace. Obviously, we have some fantastic guests on the rocket, but I, I absolutely loved, I could, in fact, I could listen to him for hours and hours. And just coming on, Liam, from what we were talking about, the sort of lunacy of net zero, I think things that we can all relate to are the sort of environmentalism that Fergal Sharkey embodies, doesn't he, in his concern for clean rivers, the beautiful description of the interaction of man and trout, you know, the kind of battle being waged there and the almost meditative pleasure he takes in that. And I think that that's the kind of greenery that we can relate to and, and how brilliantly he's championed it. But of course, you've also got that, the great love of Irish music in you and you have a, you're a great band, the Hooligans, who I hope Planet Normal listeners, maybe at some future Planet Normal event, we can have the Hooligans. because You can't afford us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a wit round, you know. <laughs> Everyone can throw a few pennies in the hat. Now, my daughter maybe fronts the Hooligans, fabulous fiddle player if I say so myself she really is her rates are going up mate there won't be enough money to to get her along so we'll see anyway <laughs> before we talk a bit more about Fergal we have two people in your family celebrating a rather special anniversary don't we we do indeed my mum and dad Martin and Eve Halligan their 60th wedding anniversary wow. uh, many congratulations to them I'm very proud that they've stuck together through thick and thin keeping our our family together and I must just mention before we move on 
Vogel Sharkey there referred to a book written by his wife, Elizabeth Sharkey, which since I spoke to him, I got hold of and have read. And it's called Why Britain Rocked, How Rock Became Roll and Took Over the World. And it's a really well put together book. It's got a fabulous foreword by Eliza Carthy, of course, a huge folk musician in her own right. And what Elizabeth Sharkey is saying is that why did Britain become the sort of centre of pop music and rock and roll? It wasn't because we imported all this stuff from America, in her view. It was because we had that combination of Celtic music from Scotland, from mm. Ireland, from the from West Wales. Country and Wales, combined with kind of American vigour and vim as Celtic music was reflected back at us that had crossed in the 19th century mm. and it came back in the 20th century into places, as Fogel Sharkey said, like Liverpool, like Manchester, Birmingham, London, and so on. It's a really, really good read, and I highly recommend it. I thought I knew a fair bit about popular music and where it came from, but Elizabeth Sharkey has really taught me a lot. It's a great book. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read them. And we've been picking up a lot of stories from you, which are making their way into the Telegraph. I'm, I'm working on an extraordinary story at the moment, which came from a listener called Calder. So please do keep sending them. Uh, last week, we had a terrific guest. We decided to call Robin Planet Normal Source, who used to work at Fujitsu, and Robin wanted to give their version of events of what they'd what they'd observed at Fujitsu when they were working on the Horizon software. And Liam, it's rather good actually. Robin's agreed to use their. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm using their because they don't want their identity to be revealed. But Robin has agreed to provide expert analysis of what's going on at this increasingly controversial post office inquiry. And Robin said, looking at what had happened this week at the Horizon Inquiry, it's rats in a sack time. The evidence on the veracity of the audit data is completed now. Thursday's evidence was a revelation, much worse than I ever dared imagine. The security team sponsored a change request to simplify gathering evidence. And Chambers is one of the senior software people at Fujitsu, knew that the platform was unreliable. Her name was all over some defects that took 11 months to fix during 2008. Where were the defects? In the settlement causing discrepancies in branch trading accounts. Also, Fujitsu Security did nothing about concerns one post office investigator had about the accuracy of the audit data. People are going to jail, Alison and Liam. The issue will be one of statute of limitations on the crimes committed. Uh, and by the way, listeners, the police investigation into Anne Chambers and other potential alleged criminal activity at Fujitsu and the post office is called Operation Olympus. Carrying on with Fujitsu, following on from your really astonishing interview last week, Alison, a listener called Mole Valley says, what a blockbuster of an episode. No one else has come near to exposing the level of detail as to why the treatment of the sub-postmasters has been so scandalous. You need to get your source, Robin, to go public. 
individuals in Fujitsu and the post office must be held accountable and prosecuted. And then Paul says, I've been following the post office saga and your interview with the Fujitsu IT insider. I'm a qualified accountant and worked for a major utility in a very senior position, says Paul. It seems inconceivable to me that the finance people could not see the problems. There should have been control accounts with big balances. What was the accounting treatment of the monies paid back by the postmasters? Did the auditors not ask questions? The inquiry should be asking the finance people these questions. Keep up the good work and the shouting outs. And finally from me for now, this is from Robin, not our insider, somebody who's genuinely called Robin. I enjoyed last week's podcast and I agree with all you say about the post office. My concern is that already the establishment, having tried denial, cover up and procrastination, are now intent on deflection. We're seeing lots of references to Fujitsu. If we're not vigilant, the real offenders, Ed Davey and co, will slip away and the blame will shift to Johnny Foreigner, brackets, the Japanese. I absolutely agree with that. And I said this before, Liam, let's not lose sight in all the shenanigans at Fujitsu and the cover-ups and so on. Let's not lose sight of the grotesquely bad management of Paula Venels and senior staff at the post office. This is from Michael. I too am from that part of Wales, Alison, and the thought that Britain will now lose all of its blast furnaces in a highly industrialised, believe it or not, world is too much for me to comprehend. The Industrial Revolution and the Industrial Revolution in Wales specifically were my favourite topics in A-level history and have continued to fascinate me throughout life as I learned of my ancestors' life struggles throughout it. It's a sad day as a real end of that whole era, not so much for Wales as a whole, but for the people, heartbreakingly, involved in that historic industrial area and for the whole of our once proud powerhouse, the United Kingdom. Green folly and the acceptance of suicidal net zero targets must be the blowing out of the candle of the world that has been our beloved country. This is from Adrian, inspired by your fabulous piece on the winter of 63. What your piece vividly brought back was the post-Christmas winter of 1947, says Adrian. In those days, internal plumbing was via lead pipes and it must have been the 23rd of February when a pipe on our staircase sprang a leak and there was water everywhere. And even now I can vividly picture myself, aged four, sitting at the top of the stairs in my wellies, watching my father, who was as useless as I am at out practical, trying to do his best while, as it turned out, in the front bedroom, my mother was about to give birth to my eldest sister. And why not? Which is why I can be so specific as to the date. <laughs> it's sister's birthday. It's an ill window, in this case an ill freeze that does nobody any good, for it was that cruel winter which hit right across post-war Europe, which acted as the catalyst for that huge and enormously generous package of aid in cash and materials, the Marshall Plan. Named after US Secretary of State George C. Marshall, it would have been more fair to name it after the principal driver and architect, Dean Acheson, who, wrote Alistair Cook, in October 1971, should have somewhere in Europe an east-facing statue erected in his memory bearing the inscription Dean Goodrum Acheson, 1893-1971, to restore the fabric of Europe. It was therefore a most savage winter, but one that begot the Marshall Plan, whose political ramifications echoed down the succeeding decades and contributed to making so many of us of that generation so instinctively pro-American for the rest of our lives. My thanks again to you and Liam. Where would we be on a Thursday without Planet Normal? Best wishes to you both from Adrian. Gosh, Adrian, I learned a lot from that. Here are a couple of reflections on the joys of the forthcoming Starmer administration. Mark says, 
kneeling to extremist Black Lives Matter, enabling the woke, empowering trans activists, eco-zealots and the Islamist left. This is what Keir Starmer will deliver as Prime Minister. We've got to do whatever it takes to keep him away from power. Bit late for that, Mark. And I love this one, Liam. This is from Pip. I look on a Labour government like having a tooth taken out. Best get it over and done with. (laughs) (laughs) And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, co-pilot. I'm going to give it to Adrian for explaining the origins of the astonishing Marshall Plan. I really learnt a lot and it was fascinating, as well as your sister being born in a deep freeze. So, Adrian, email us. To planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, send us your postal address and put in the subject heading mug winner, and we will send you a planet normal mug. And before we go, Alison, finally, you've got to tell us about the cat. <laughs> When's it arriving and how much does it cost? Well, I can answer the first part of the question. I may I may be divorced <laughs> if I answer the second part. So, DD Puss, the Turkish cat, is coming ashore onto land at Harwich in Essex on Saturday evening, 7.45pm. She'll have a little welcoming party on the dock. Probably one very, very furious cat. Not sure what she's going to make of Essex in January with the, with the wind and the rain. It's all right, you're going to buy Diddy some little booties and a little hat, aren't you? A little cat coat. <laughs> Crikey. Listen, it's a heartwarming story. How are you going to write Halligan. about the cat in your column? And is there going to be a photo of this cat in the Daily Telegraph? I think there's already several photographs of the cat on the Telegraph website, but there will indeed. Yes, I think we might even have a video of Dee Dee coming ashore. Unlike many recent migrants <sighs> making that journey, she's actually very well documented and could indeed be installed, as you suggested, as Prime Minister, Liam. <laughs> She can even go to work under new government rules. <laughs> she can't. In a shortage occupation. Yeah. Are you worried that the dog is going to eat the cat? Because if your dog does eat your cat, you're going to have to write about that in the Telegraph too. Until you mentioned the idea that Bingo would eat the cat, that thought had not even occurred to me. Anyway, we won't be going, won't be going on holiday to Turkey this year because we've spent spent all the flight money on bringing the cat here. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our wonderful producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>